Uh, turn in your Bibles to um, John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, as we uh, continue this series in the Gospel of John, I will uh, confess that when, um, if you saw in the, the church email, I don't know, probably late July, just before the end of, of my sabbatical, I kind of talked about all the things I thought about preaching when we got back from sabbatical. And John had not originally been on the list. In fact, I'm pretty sure I told more than one of you it was probably going to be Romans. But after reading and praying and such on sabbatical, I was drawn to the Gospel of John um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But I I do have to admit that I forgot. I knew, but I was on sabbatical. So I didn't remember that Sunday school was going to be Matthew. (laughs) So uh, I probably still would have done John anyway, but uh, for what that's worth, uh, if nothing else, it'll give us um, another glimpse into how... The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are different from John, or how John is different uh, from the other three. Um, John chapter 1, this morning we will read verses uh, 19 through verse 34. Uh, If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, quoting from our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one, You do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, which is a different Bethany from uh, the next day. Verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Use this, your word, uh, to bring unbelievers to saving faith, to strengthen the faith of your saints, uh, and use it to uh, even serve the greater kingdom, uh, the world in which we live. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Let me encourage you, uh, you will want to keep your Bibles. You may be seated. Sorry. That was, yeah. Um, let me make lemmings. Okay. Um, uh, you'll want to keep your Bible handy. You're going to need it uh, because uh, this will become a bit of a, uh, a sword drill here and there uh, just so you can kind of see the background um, for the questions that these, this uh, delegation is asking John. So don't close your Bibles. Don't put those away. Uh, back in 2019, uh, Nancy and the kids and I uh, got to see uh, La Traviata, uh, Verdi's opera. Actually, in Verona, in a coliseum that's older than the coliseum. And it's still intact and still in use. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, but, of course, you know, stone collects heat all day. And then when you go to sit down at night, you just fry. But anyway... Um, and it just so happens that the night we were there, Placido Domingo was playing one of the parts. And we knew that when we went, we'd, but it was the night that we were able to go. And so we did. Um, the orchestra down in the pit kind of played the prelude as they do and gave you the themes for the play as they do. The curtain went up. Now, I suppose if you were more, if you were well-versed in operas, if you had more knowledge of operas than I do, translation, any knowledge of them at all, right, you might know better. But I, I don't know, I just have this sense that when the curtain goes up, there's a part of me that expects to see the star right there on center stage. You just sort of, for some reason, and, and I guess we know better. Maybe we watch enough TV that we ought to know better because typically the star of the movie isn't the, in the first scene. But there is this sort of notion that when, that when that curtain rises, when that curtain gets drawn back, you expect one of the three tenors to be standing right there in the And he wasn't. Um, and it kind of threw me for a bit of a loop. Well, the reality is that's kind of how John's gospel plays out. The, John's gospel is a lot like a play. It's a lot like um, you've shown up for uh, an, an opera. You've come to a, a Broadway musical and you've heard the orchestra play the prelude, those first 18 verses of John, that, that you hear the themes of his gospel. I pointed that out some last week. And then it's really in verse 19 that the curtain finally gets sort of drawn back and the actors are on the stage, except the actor standing center stage isn't Jesus. It isn't the word in the flesh, which is what the verse 18 verses were all about. It's John. John the Baptist, not John the gospel writer. John the baptizer. He's not a Baptist. 
like we think of Baptists. He was a baptizer. He was baptizing people. So there's that. Uh, so on center stage is John the, the Baptist. But the reality is that kind of makes sense um, because it's his job. We know this already. You can see it back in verses um, 6 and 7 and 8. Uh, describing John who's going to come as a witness. You can see it in verse 15. Um, and also is still in the prologue. John bore witness. There's also a bit of a bookend around this passage that, that I sort of feel like you ought to pay attention to. Because notice in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. And then look down at the end in verse 34. I have seen and have borne witness. So there's a, there's a, here's a trick, by the way. Um, you're, you're doing your morning devotions, evening devotions. You're reading the Bible whenever you do them. Whenever you see a word show up a whole bunch of times in a real small section, it's probably important. And unfortunately, the English loses it a little bit. Although if we think long enough, we would recognize there's a connection between testimony and bearing witness. But in Greek, it's the same root word. Those two words share the same root. You would, if you were reading, in fact, if the reality is if, if you knew Greek, if you spent any time on a college campus with fraternities and sororities, you would be more than prepared to recognize the similarities between the two words. Imagine saying, I'm going for a run. And then at the end of the day saying, oh, this is where I ran. Same word, but not exactly the same. It's the best I can do in English, sorry. Same word, but not exactly. One's a noun, one's a verb. But you know they come from the same place. Well, the reality is the, the word martyr is what's being used there in verse 19 and then in verse 34. And so you have this sense right off the bat that John the Baptist's job is to be a witness, is to bear testimony. So he stands front and center when, this, when, the, when the curtain opens because he is going to bear witness. He's going to bear testimony to the Christ. And what we find is that his testimony has two parts. First, not me. There's a, there's a delegation that come to him in verse 19, 20. Um, they're sent from the Jews. They are priests and Levites. Now that matters. Um, uh, priests obviously serve in the temple, offer sacrifices, things of that sort. Levites were, um, the priests are a subset of the Levites. Levite, the, the Levites descend from the tribe of Levi. So do the priests, but the priests come from Aaron, Moses' brother. The, these other Levites would have been, um, church worker types, you know, uh, musicians taking care of the property, uh, guards, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a second thing to notice about them, and we find in verse 24, some of the people sent to John are Pharisees. Now, technically, verse 24 can be a little, there are some options there. Either 
It was the Pharisees that sent the, the, the priests and Levites. Um, they're sent from the, the Sanhedrin in essence. Um, or some of them were Pharisees or it's a different delegation. It seems to me that some of the priests and Levites were belong to the party that is the Pharisees. But the point is, their job was to make sure that things happened um, according to Jewish law and custom. Their job was to serve as Jewish law and custom police to verify that things are being done on the up and up, if you will. They protect the, the worship in the temple according to Jewish law uh, to make sure things are being done according to tradition. And so the key is that John gets to bear, bear witness, to, to bear this testimony before these religious authorities. And notice they come with a question. The heart of the, they okay, it grows into several questions, but the aim is one question. Their one question is, who are you? Now, if, if John the Baptist had seen the Princess Bride, his answer would be, I'm no one to be trifled with or no one of consequence. Except that actually is his answer. The rest of everything he says to them is, I'm, I'm no one of consequence. I'm not really that important. Notice he's quick to say, I'm not the Who are you? Okay, if you answer with your name, you have answered the question. You know that's not what they want. They know his name. What they really want to know is, what right do you have to do the things you're doing? Where does your authority come from? Right? And so they ask, who are you? And his answer is, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the promised Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the one who would come and, and, and bring salvation to Israel, to God's people. But you notice that these religious leaders, as they should, knew their Bible. So they changed their question. Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Why would they ask him, are you Elijah? Turn with me back to Malachi chapter 4. And for us, this is easy. Malachi, it's literally the last verse, the last couple of verses right before the blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi, the last prophet of of the old covenant era says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the religious leaders, knowing that Elijah hadn't died, but was taken up in the chariot of fire, the religious leaders were pretty sure the real Elijah would come back. They were expecting actual Elijah. John says, I'm not Elijah. That's not who I am. Are you then the prophet? And this time they're looking back at Deuteronomy 18. You can just write this down if you want and check it out later. But in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, 
uh, uh, God tells Moses, the people of Israel, that there's going to be another prophet who comes like Moses to bring the word of God to his people. Some of the Jewish leaders assumed that that was actually a reference to the Messiah, which it is. Some of them assumed it was a reference to some other prophet. So who is John? You see, notice verse 22. This religious delegation has to take something back to the people that sent them, right? Note like, we, we have to have some answer. We can't go back with, well, we know he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. That's not an answer. That's only half of an answer. Who is he? And so he quotes verse 23. Isaiah 40. The, the person that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40. And can you read Isaiah 40 without wanting to sing it? Right? If, if Handel's Messiah isn't going through your head when you read Isaiah 40, you just want to sing, Comfort ye my people. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and says, look, I'm the voice, the, the person that Isaiah said would come, and, and in the wilderness, in the wasteland, in the, the, the messiness that by now is the church, mind you. Because it's, it's been 400 years since anyone came as a prophet from God to God's people. He's the forerunner. He's the one that would, would lead the Messiah out. He's the one who would come before the Christ, who would come before the Deliverer and, and announce His arrival on the scene, which is exactly why He's standing front and center of the stage when the curtains open. His job is to make sure the audience knows, I'm not the person you're looking for. I'm simply the person here who tells you where he is, how you can find him, how you can recognize him, what he's going to do, and, and to point to him. But there's something interesting going on with John. Turn back to Matthew chapter 11. And let me show you something. Notice John has denied being Elijah and he's denied being the Christ. But in Matthew 11, which, mind you, takes place after John 1, uh, Matthew 11, uh, look at verse uh, 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, He will prepare, uh, who will prepare your way uh, before you. Truly I say to you, those born... Uh, those born of women, there has, uh, sorry, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than I. There's this glimpse in which 
Uh, Jesus actually calls him the prophet. Jesus connects him to Elijah. Jesus, Jesus connects him to the forerunner in Isaiah. Does that mean there's something wrong with your Bible? Well, if John says he's not and Jesus says he is, does that mean there's something wrong with your Bible? Or does that mean there's something wrong with John or there's something wrong with Jesus? Or might it be an indication of John's humility? Because think about his function. Think about his role. His whole purpose on the stage is to stand there and go, I'm not the guy you're looking for. The person you want to see is not me. That's the, the essence of his message, especially in these verses, verses 19 to 28. And so John stands there and, and deflects all, um, all possibility that he might be mistaken. And his call to ministry comes directly from Scripture. His function, his purpose, his whole mission is to serve as a voice Crying in the wilderness. The Lord is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. But that raises a question. It raises another question, which is why the Pharisees are introduced here. Hold on a second. If you're not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, what gives you the right to baptize people? It just so happens that baptism wasn't a foreign concept. It wasn't, it wasn't something unknown to these people. It was relatively commonly enough practice. You, you would, would wash someone sort of ceremonially introducing them into your order, your group, or as a, as a disciple of some teacher. But the Pharisees are introduced here, I think, precisely because this is a, a Jewish law question. What gives you the right to baptize if you're not one of the, the big three? If you don't have the right, why are you taking that right upon yourself? Notice John's response in verse 26. John assures these Jewish representatives that he baptizes with water only. And the, the contrast isn't, well, other people baptize with other things. No, the contrast is, this is water. The one you really care about baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I can't do that, John says. I baptize, I give the sign, but I can't guarantee, I can't make the thing signified happen. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. I can't baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John is his whole aim, even in this response, is to say, I can only offer a portion of what baptism is supposed to be. I can baptize with water, but not with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this event is taking place after John has already baptized Jesus. John baptizing Jesus happened before this, and it appears, and you notice there's a couple of days, right? You'll notice that when Jesus appears in the next verse, you get the sense he's coming back from the wilderness, having been tempted by the devil 
for 40 days uh, in, in the wilderness. And so John's already seen, he's already baptized Jesus, saw the dove, saw the Father, heard the Father affirm the Son with the Spirit and His voice. So John's watched all of that and can simply say, I am not Him. There's a second part to his uh, testimony. Uh, The first part is not me. The second is Him. It's that simple. The scene changes in verse 29. It's a new day. Uh, Jesus uh, appears on the scene. He's coming towards John and John points. Now, there is the saying, of course, that is every time you point at someone, right? the, the saying, if you point, you have four fingers pointing back at you, which isn't true because your thumb can't do that unless there's something really wrong with it. It's only three fingers, not four. And, and the reality is, okay, I guess if you're looking to pass the blame, sure. But the point is, well, the aim is, nah, that also doesn't help. The point is, pointing isn't always bad. Because that's exactly what John does here. He does it with his words, and you almost can't say behold without pointing. If you say behold, you're telling people there is something you have to look at. Like yesterday. No, Friday. When the local yellow crop duster plane was out at our house. Now, I've seen this plane. You know the You know it. I, I swear he's got to be, be a, have a monopoly on this gig in Limestone County. I've seen him, but I've never seen him out there. Am I missing something? Has he been there before? Um, I've never seen him out in, in the fields around our house until Friday. And then you look around the neighborhood and all the homeschool kids are outside pointing at the plane. This thing's dive bombing the fields, crop dust flying. Out, and you're thinking it's going to hit the trees in my backyard. We're in big trouble. Pointing says, don't look at me, look at something else or someone else. You point at things when you want everyone to turn their attention that way. That's John's testimony. Not me, him. And when he points, you follow his finger. You're supposed to turn your gaze towards the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John points, probably with his finger. John, the gospel writer, doesn't tell us, but you almost have to assume he did. As soon as he said, behold, he had to say, behold, that way, not behold, that way, or that way, or any way you decide to make up. And the reality is, John has rejected... In verses 19 to 28, he's rejected any notion that he's more important than people might think he is. If people try to give him credit for being the Messiah, for being the... He said, hold on a second. I'm not... Don't make me more than who I am. But he's also um, alleviated the fears of the Jews that he's not really that dangerous to them. The very next day, however... John finally gets to point at the true deliverer of God's people. The one who will baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Well, 
He says him, not me, but him. What does he say about him? Well, look at verse 30, for example. Jesus ranks before John, even though John's older than Jesus. John and Jesus are cousins according to the flesh. And John is actually several months older than Jesus. And yet, he can say, he's before me. Well, hold on a second. You're older than he is, John. How can that be? John's affirming Jesus is before me because he was before me. He's just reaffirming what John wrote in the first 18 verses that that Jesus' beginning doesn't begin at his birth. That when he took on flesh, he already was. In fact, when creation began to begin, he was. And so Jesus affirm I mean John affirms the deity of Christ. Jesus is eternal. The Messiah didn't begin to exist when he was born of Mary. Now the second person of the Trinity, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, has taken on flesh. But that's not his beginning, as it were. He says more about who Jesus is. Notice when he baptized Jesus, verse 32, I watched, I baptized him, and I literally watched the Spirit in the form of a dove come and rest on this guy. I've heard as the Father approved of the Son by his words and by granting him the Spirit to to rest on him, to convey to those around, uh, around him that this is the Messiah. This is my son. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. This is the promised Messiah to come and free my people. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit, not just with water. Something else he says about Uh, about Jesus. Notice the words in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His Jewish audience understood what a lamb was. It's a sacrificial animal. It's an animal that, that gives its life To atone for the guilt and sin and shame of the offerer. The image of a a lamb slaughtered to atone for sin has been before Israel's face for ages and ages and ages. Remember the sacrificial system instituted under Moses during their wandering in the wilderness. Remember the morning and evening sacrifices for sin. Remember the Passover lamb who bled and died and those households who were, whose households were covered by the blood of the lamb were passed over by the death angel. They were delivered. They were spared God's judgment because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. And as 
Bob called attention to our assurance of pardon just a few minutes ago. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. Jesus, Isaiah 53, which was our assurance of pardon, would be the lamb who bears the iniquity of our guilt and sin and shame. He's the one who who makes the offering, but he is the offering for our sin. The point is, Jesus fulfills all of those things. Everything that the Old Testament has been longing for, all of this whole sacrificial priestly system that the Old Covenant has anticipated, has wished for, has hoped for, has missed out on, at least in the flesh, is now in their midst. That lamb is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all of those promises. The the reality is the the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats were never sufficient for paying the debt that our sin deserves. They were never enough, could never do what the blood of Jesus does in washing us clean, atoning for our sin. And so John's message in verses 19 to uh, 34 is clear. As he stands, the curtains open on John's gospel, the play of John's gospel, and he stands center stage and he simply says, not me, him. Let me make a a couple of applications from this passage. Uh, The first is simply from John himself. John's testimony, John's witness is is the responsibility, the function of preachers and churches everywhere. Don't waste a minute of your time listening to people who will stand up supposedly proclaiming God's word and say, it's me. You give your attention to people who say, not me. Him. And don't join the church that says it's me. It's us. Instead, you join churches that say, not us. Him. Because the reality is, John's mission is really the role of preachers and churches everywhere. To point to Christ and say, you look at Him. Behold Him. And then a second application just from John's Words and really John the Baptist's words, but also the message of John's gospel. Behold Jesus. Isn't that what John? Behold, right? And why does John write his gospel? So that we might behold and believe. If you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, this passage says you don't have hope outside of Christ. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other one. There is no other option. There is no other me. There is no other him but Jesus. Set your gaze, fix your eyes on Christ as your redeemer. Put your faith and your trust in him as the only deliverer from sin. And this passage pleads with you. To do just that. To do what John wanted his hearers to do. To behold 
Jesus. If you have, if you're here this morning having trusted in Christ and and confident that there is forgiveness found in Him, then be strengthened, be encouraged, be hopeful. Because this is the message we take to people out there. You do realize, when I say out there, I do not mean everybody outside of Grace Covenant. Right? I'm talking to everybody outside of the capital C church. People who are outside the household of God. This is exactly what they need. Whatever their belief, whatever their background, whatever their race, creed, whatever education level, what they need is for people to come around them and say, behold, there's Jesus. There's the Lamb of God. He offers salvation and Him alone. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you, uh, in your love, even before the foundation of the world, determined to send your son to satisfy the demands of the law because we fail, to pay the debt that we owe, to live righteously, obediently in our place, and therefore to earn the right to even be the spotless, blemishless Lamb of God. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to go to the cross, to accomplish our deliverance. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make us people who are quick to point, not to ourselves, not to claim credit, not to say, look how great we are, look how smart I am, look how wonderful I am, but instead to point to Christ and to tell others around us, behold, there's the Lamb of God. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.